Today's sermon text will be read from John, the sixth chapter, 47 through 59. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me, I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Charles. Um, A lot of um, people, when they think of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, we assume that these are just sort of various biographies about Jesus. Um, there's, There's a lot of overlap. Some of the Gospels include some stories about Jesus, while others seem to leave out some stories and include others. But generally speaking, the Gospels overlap on the really important parts of Jesus' life, which are he was born of the Virgin Mary, he grew up, he began to teach and do amazing things, heal the sick, raise the dead. Um, He did wonderful works of ministry and justice to people who were oppressed, And then he died a horrific death at the hands of his own people. And then God raised him from the dead. And we finish, I think a lot of people assume, we finish the story by writing the last chapter. And that is, if I believe in Jesus, then he'll come into my heart and then I'll go to heaven. And the problem with that view of the Gospels is it sort of strips it down and makes the Gospels sort of humdrum and boring. Um, They're just stories about Jesus. They're accounts, they're biographies. And, you know, one of the few things that I ever hear people say is I really, really, really enjoy reading biographies. I know that there are people here who like biographies. There are those strange people. But most people don't enjoy reading biographies at all. And then the history thing, it's like, okay, I know how to sort of tolerate that, but let's get to the good stuff. And so for a lot of people, the Gospels go barely touched. And then if you had my upbringing in the church where you can remember stories about Jesus going back to your earliest days where you were self-conscious, then it's easy to begin to believe that, you know, I've read these so many times, I'm so familiar with these stories, I really don't know what I can learn from them. And so 
we sort of move on and try to find something else intriguing or stimulating in the scriptures. And I think that's a lot of people, there are a lot of people that share that posture, that attitude towards the gospels. I don't think there's any malice behind that. I don't think there's any, anything under that except just sort of a blindness. That we don't see something that is beautiful and glorious right in front of our eyes. Um, this oversimplified view, I think, renders the gospels kind of boring. And I think we lose sight and lose touch with the breathtaking drama of God's redemption that has been taking place throughout all of human history when we have that attitude that the gospels are basically the story of Jesus and if I believe and get saved and and I'll go to heaven. There's so much more to it than that. Um, I think one of the big problems with that view is it leaves us asking the question, what now? How do the Gospels impact my life right now where I am? Um, I said I was sorry to a brother a moment ago for, uh, because when he and I began to talk this morning, I was feeling really sad, um, like really sad. Uh, when I got here, I was immediately greeted with three stories that were devastating. And I don't know, I just struggle doing small talk when I hear stories like that. And the sad, I'm still feeling it right now. And, um, and honestly, I'm trying to review in my head where God wants to take this message, to be honest with you. But um, we're living in a wilderness time in our lives. Um, I sort of feel that, I don't know where this comes from. I think it's just sort of been shaped in me by, by growing up and being in the church and being in ministry for so long now. And, you know, when you get back from vacation, you should have a real barnstormer of a word, you know. Or it needs to absolutely stink because you've been partying so hard while you are on vacation. Um, I don't know where it's going to fall on that continuum. Um, but I was strangely encouraged, strangely encouraged that maybe the Lord wants to say something to you today because of the coincidence of today's text that I think matches up with some of your hurt and some of your devastation, quite frankly. Um, this chapter of John 6 is one of the most frustrating chapters in the Bible. As a matter of fact, I've always found the Gospel of John to be really frustrating. Um, I encourage you to listen to your inner dialogue when you read the scriptures. Listen to your heart push back from a text. Ask yourself what you're feeling when you read something. I really don't like that the Apostle Paul said this. I don't agree with that. Figure out where you are. Because where there's that clashing of your heart and your mind against God's, Man, I've come to find that God wants to do something amazing in your life where that clashing is taking place. And that clashing often shows me where my own spiritual stubbornness is and pride and maybe even my own idolatry. Um, but John's always frustrated with me. Um, it's, it's become probably my favorite book now. But for so many years it frustrated me because I didn't feel like he gave me practical how-tos. Abide in Jesus. And I'm like... Why couldn't you have just added a verse and said how to do that? You know, eat Jesus's uh, 
flesh, drink his blood. Um, there's a lot of that type of talk, this abstract talk in John. And I think I often forget that we live in a secular society where prayer is very utilitarian. It's something you do before you eat. It's something you do before you go to sleep. It's not something that's been woven into the fabric of our lives, generally speaking, generally speaking. These people in that culture grew up where religious practices were taken for granted. They just, that was part of your life. And so there wasn't necessarily a burden that John felt to say, okay, guys, now here's what you do when you pray. I don't think he felt that burden like I do as a pastor. Here's what you do when you pray. I like what, the way Matthew says it in quoting Jesus. When you pray, say this. <laughs> I'm like, I love that, you know? Just say this. I'm like, okay, I can do that. Um, that's a little easier. But there's, and there's, there's some of that in the Gospel of John. There's some of that. There's a lot of, there is some of that, let's do this and say this. But a lot of it is, he just leaves us in this place of feeling no resolve. What do I do? And I think that's where the Holy Spirit's saying, exactly. Walk with me. Allow your life to be baptized in process. Learn to live with frustration. Walk with me. Be a part of me. Let's go somewhere together because it's going to take a lifetime. And so after years and years and years of following Jesus, I can't stand up here and say to you, I kill it when I pray. I can't. But I can say to you that I'm learning to pray, that I'm enjoying prayer generally, that I'm enjoying the presence of Jesus, except when I'm convicted of my sins. <laughs> and I think that's what God wants to say to us today. He wants to bring us on a journey today. And that's the way John writes his whole gospel. He's writing to people who have a, a general understanding of the Jewish epic, the Jewish history. Centuries and centuries, millennia of struggle as they follow Yahweh, God, throughout this present evil age that is so jacked up, that is so painful, that's so full of hurt and devastation, so full of bad news. And you can't read the Gospel of John, especially chapter 6, without, unless you just read it with, with ignorance because you don't know the Bible very well or you're just sort of going through the motions. It's hard to read John chapter 6 and not see some of the most profound points of Jewish history just float to the surface. This, this story, this chapter begins with Jesus standing amongst the crowd and he's teaching them. And they followed him into the wilderness. The wilderness. And John makes it a point to date this passage by saying it happened at Passover time. This would be Jesus' second Passover. And it's at the Passover time. And if you know anything about the Passover, it's when God called Moses to go to the children of Israel and to lead them out of Egyptian bondage. And he said, here's what you do. He gave him a cookbook. He said, I want you to eat a meal, and here's how the meal needs to be made, prepared. 
You've got to be able to make it quick because at a moment's notice, you're going to have to leave. So don't wait for your bread to rise, no yeast, all that stuff. You've got to be able to eat fast and get out of there. Scram. And he says, when you go there, you tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and you lead them out into the wilderness. Lead them there. Lead them there. And that lamb that you eat that night at dinner, you take the blood of that lamb and you smear it on the doorposts. Smear it on the doorposts. So that when I come and judge the Egyptians, I will pass over my family, my covenant family, the Hebrews, and they will be delivered not only just from Egypt, but they'll be delivered from me and my wrath. And you lead them into the wilderness. And when you go into the wilderness, you worship. And if you know the story, they're going into the wilderness. And as they're going, they get to this really, 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 really big body of water called the Red Sea. And there's nowhere to go because the Egyptians are hot on their, pa- on their tracks. And God splits the Red Sea. And they walked across this vast body of water on dry ground. And when you go to chapter 6 in the Gospel of John, Jesus, it's, Jesus is already experiencing frustration that the people don't really believe in him, but they're seeking a sign. They're seeking a sign. They want their Moses to come. The book of Deuteronomy speaks of another one like Moses who will come and lead the nation of Israel into freedom. And they're wondering, and generally people in the the Jewish heritage viewed the next Moses as the Messiah. And so they're wondering, is Jesus really the Messiah? So they keep asking him, clamoring for him to do more and more and more miracles to prove himself. Because even though he did these miracles, they still couldn't quite figure him out. He doesn't exactly match up with our assumptions about what a Messiah should be, do, and say. And so Jesus is frustrated. He says that all the way back in chapter 4. I'm frustrated with you people. Why don't you just believe you are always seeking a sign? It's the same thing in the wilderness. In the wilderness when the people of Israel were grumbling against God. And then you get to chapter 6 and you've got Jesus who is feeding his people bread. He takes bread and multiplies it and feeds thousands in the same way that in the wilderness, when the people of Israel were grumbling against God, God said, okay, I'll feed you. And he rained bread or manna from heaven. And Jesus in that text calls himself the manna or the bread sent from God, sent from heaven. These are some of the things that you missed when you just sort of look at it as a biography of Jesus. There's something going on here. Jesus didn't just do the bread multiplication thing because that would have been really cool. There was a message buried in that act. I am the new Moses. I am sent from God and I can only do things that God can do. Read between the lines. I am Yahweh. I am your deliverer. But you just won't believe and you grumble, so here's your bread. And then interestingly, that night, Jesus sends his disciples across the water, across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. And it's as they get to Capernaum, that they're, they're, as they're on their way there, there's this great storm, this gale, and they're terrified. 
and they look out of the boat and they notice someone is crossing the sea. Just like the Israelites crossed the Red Sea in in searching out for deliverance and to worship God, Jesus is crossing the sea, walking on water as though it is dry land. And he delivers his servants, his disciples. And he tells them, don't fear, I'm with you. And he gets into their boat. Jesus is saying something by doing this. Why would he send his disciples across to Capernaum and then stay there? if he didn't have an intent. The next morning, everybody in the campsite wakes up and goes, "Um, we remember the disciples taking boats across, but where is Jesus? Then they go across and they find Jesus. And then this long teaching begins. This is one of the long chapters of John. And Jesus begins to tell them, start believing and quit looking for signs. And he uses all this abstract language of him being the bread of heaven and that they should eat him. That they should drink of him. In other words, rather than seeking a sign, cherish me. He commends his self to them. He says, the things that you're looking for that you think will satisfy you, the things that you think will answer your questions, that will deal with all of your skepticism, it's not, gonna, it's not that. It's not me doing more signs. It's you taking a step of faith and feasting on me. That's what's going to convince you. That's what's finally going to get your heart over that bump. That's what it's going to take. And so this is what's happening here, really not even just John chapter 6, but through all the gospel of John. I love that moment in in the book of Exodus when Moses is at the burning bush and God is telling Moses, go to the people of Israel, go to the Hebrews, and tell them that I sent you. And Moses says, well, who will I say sent me? And he says, tell them, I am sent you. And John, one of the things that John, the gospel of John is famous for, is giving us all the I am statements that Jesus uttered in the gospel. I am the bread of life, Jesus said in John 6. I am the light of the world in John 8 and 9. I am the door of the sheep in John 10. I am the good shepherd also in John 10. I am the resurrection and the life, he says in John 11. In John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 15, I am the true vine. What was Jesus implying with these statements? I am. I am the one who consumed the bush without destroying it in Exodus. And the same I am that sent Moses to deliver your forefathers, your ancestors, He is standing in front of you right now. I am. I am. I love this about the gospel of John. And so we get to the text in John 6, verse 47 through 59. And I want to read verses 47 through 48. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes has eternal life. Now, I want to remind everybody here that we're kind of, sort of, still in 
our series, Putting on Christ. Kind of, sort of, because we couldn't think of a name for the month of July. Um, And this really syncs up with the last series that we were in. And I've just not had time to plan a new one because I've been partying. So, um, but I do want to remind you that what we've been talking about through our series, Putting on Christ, is on the surface experiencing transformation in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, in our behaviors. Real change. But underneath that, something much more profound and much more important. Experiencing the phenomenon of true conversion and walking it out in our lives in which Jesus is our bread. Jesus is our cup. Jesus is is our satisfaction. Because the only way I am convinced that people will experience true change, transformation, heart change, is through learning how to feast and be satisfied on Jesus, on the person of Jesus. And this is what I'm going for today. I want you to walk away today having feasted and having a better grasp on, on how to feast on the life of Jesus so you can be transformed. I want you to be resilient in this wilderness that we're in. Jesus led the people into the wilderness, I think deliberately, to show them something. He could have taught them in their neighborhoods. He could have gone house to house. He didn't have to lead the disciples into the wilderness. But they came and he taught them. And I think at least, at least partly the motive in so many of his wilderness talks was to remind the people of Israel that he's forming a new kind of Israelite nation just like Yahweh did way back in Exodus. And that's why I think he went over to Capernaum in this same text because they're not, this new nation is not just made up of Jews. It's also made up of Gentiles. Capernaum was a Gentile region. This isn't just about being an ethnic Jew. This is about having belief in Jesus and being part of the family of God. Not based on whose blood is running through your veins, but based on your faith in Jesus. That makes us children of Abraham and thus children of God. What does it mean to believe? What does it mean when he says believe? Because you would think if all of us were following Jesus around and he was doing those miracles, we'd be eating out of his hand. I mean, imagine if the preacher shows up on a Sunday and starts doing like really crazy, insane things. Like raising the dead, healing the sick, all that kind of stuff. This church would go from 500 to 10,000 in five minutes. That's a really great growth mechanism. <laughs> Why is it that they still don't believe? Why is it that Jesus is so relentless and is going constantly under the surface, getting below their lust for miracles and the sensational? What is Jesus going for? True belief, which begs the question, what does true belief look like? And then you just read through the rest of this text after verse 47, just the verses that we read today, that Charles read. And he says these words, I am the bread of life. Eat this bread and live forever. Another party says, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood. And then he says in verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me 
and I in him. And I in him. The problem with a lot of people then and a lot of people now, and it'll be this way until Jesus returns in all of his glory, is that a lot of us want miracles to order rather than moving on to real faith and trust and dependence on Jesus. Miracles that are made to order are amazing. I want miracles to happen in our church. I want to, and when I say our church, I mean our Sunday gatherings, our community groups. I want to see miracles. I want to see God do great things in bringing deliverance and transformation and healing to your lives. I pray that over all of you every day, every day. But there's a difference between lusting after signs and miracles and forming Jesus into our cosmic repairman versus truly depending on Jesus, relying on Jesus. I put up this really, this beautiful picture the other day from the Library of Congress. We, were in, we spent a few days in D.C. with some friends. Went to the Library of Congress and I got to walk into the seedbed of the Library of Congress. The Library of Congress was started with Thomas Jefferson's library. Many, that's great, everybody think that's just a wonderful, you know, an academic gesture, but he was bankrupt and he needed the money. So he sold it to the Library of Congress, and, or to the Congress, and they started the Library of Congress. And I got to walk into this room that was dark because so many of the books that were in there were original books that Thomas Jefferson read His fingerprints are still on many of these books. If the books that had the little green ribbon poking out of the top, they were in his personal library that he read. And the volumes of books that he had are vast. And I come up to the section where it shows all the Bibles that he owned. And many people are aware that that Thomas Jefferson was not a follower of Jesus. He was a deist. He rejected that Jesus was a miracle worker, that he was raised from the dead. Um, Sometimes we very patriotically try to turn our founding fathers, some of our founding fathers, into something that they weren't. He even wrote his own Bible, the Jefferson Bible, because he rejected so much of Jesus. Yet he was an avid reader of Scripture. And then I look down and I see his very own copy, his very own copy of the Institutes by John Calvin. Which blows my mind, because whether or not you agree with John Calvin, you can't read that and not, and not walk away going, man, this guy loves Jesus. And this guy was consumed with the glory of God. And I just thought it was really cool. It was a beautiful picture. I put a cool filter on it on Instagram, and it changed the leather to more of like a rose or a rose-colored leather. And I did it from an angle so you couldn't see my reflection in it like this, you know. And I put it on Instagram. I said, man, look at this. John Calvin's, I mean, uh, Thomas Jefferson's copy, very own copy of the Institutes with the green ribbon poking out of the top. And some dude gets on there and completely obliterates me, a guy that I know who completely, none of you, who completely obliterates me because I even even suggested that Calvinism is a legitimate theological system. And I'm like, good, good grief. And I'm reading this and I'm walking around furious. I'm, I am so mad. I was shaking. I was so mad. I mean, this guy went off on me. I had to delete the whole post because it was so toxic. And I'm like, look at this. And I'm so mad. We're having this wonderful picnic on the Washington Mall. And I'm walking around like this in the, over here under a tree. I'm so mad. And 
And oh man, I had so many good comebacks. And I'll spare you the dialogue that was in my head. It was not kind. It was just as toxic and ugly. I might have texted my family and a couple of my family and told them some things I shouldn't have. But anyway, um, that's another story. That'll be in my biography one day. Um, So, in that moment, I'm just hearing these whispers in the back of my head of things that I preached. Something Something a friend told me a long time ago. Chris, how can God defend you if you're the one defending yourself? And his words were so ugly and mean and unfair. And there was like three, in in the Instagram feed, I can tell you this, the Instagram feed, there were three paragraph long things that he said about me. And all these people have seen this, I think. That's what my insecurities are telling me. And then I deleted the post or deleted the comments. And it deleted everybody's comments but his. And I was even more angry. And I called Jeremy and I was like, Jeremy, here's my password to my Instagram. I'm in, D- I'm in downtown D.C. Delete that post for me, please. So I'll try to figure it out. I'm like, no, figure it out. You've got to do this. And, and I, in that moment, I wanted so bad to light that dude up. I mean, light him up. And I'm remembering. I'm glad I've gotten over this, aren't you? Um, <laughs> and I'm remembering those words. That Jesus is my defense. That I don't have to defend myself. I wish I could tell you that the anger went away for about the next three days that was in the back of my mind. I was hurt by that. This is a person who's encouraged me and who's spoken well of me and um, lives in another place. But I was, I was hurt by that. I was really hurt and angry. And I felt it was unfair. And if I sit here and dwell on it as I am now, I'll probably start feeling that again. <laughs> But in that moment, I knew I had to depend on Jesus. I had to rely on him. Jesus is my defense, not me. I don't have to stick up for myself. Jesus will. That's kind of wimpy, Chris. Let me tell you something. It would have been a lot easier to blow him up on Instagram. A lot easier. A lot easier. We blow people up on Instagram. That is crazy. So... And Jesus says at the end of this text to to abide in him. Abide in him. And so I'm looking at this going, what would it it have been that it would have kept these Jewish people from really believing in Jesus? What was it that they struggled with? What did they stumble over? What was it that caused them to keep them from like signing on on the dotted line? Because I want to know what it is in my life that keeps me from really trusting in Jesus. I think part of it was shock. And this is, this is really interesting. Uh, this is really important. I think we all need to hear this. The Jewish law forbade people from drinking blood. And Jesus deliberately said, you've got to drink my blood. That was shocking. That was insensitive. That was culturally inappropriate. Where do we get this idea that the preacher has to coddle our assumptions? I'm not 
I'm not in city way giving you a sign that I'm going to start being verbally abusive up here. I don't mean that. I don't want to do that. But where do we get this idea that when we come to church, everything that we believe needs to be loved on and petted? Be gentle with me. Jesus was shocking to these people. Shocking. I think Jesus was going for a visceral response. I think he was tired of their apathy. He says, drink my blood. Like, what? <laughs> what did, he, did you hear what he just said? He got their pores open. He got their eyes open. What do we do with this? There's no resolve. What do we do with this? I think he was shocking them. I heard Bill Hybels one time. He said, he was ministering to pastors and he said, these words, for God's sake, preachers, make them feel something. Make them feel happy. Make them feel sad. Make them feel angry. But make them feel something. I think John wants us to feel something when we read this. Not turn it into a kid's Sunday school lesson. I think their hearts were hard. They had assumptions about what the Messiah should be that he didn't match up with. Their hearts were hard. They wanted Jesus to deliver them. At the end of the text, and um, in another John five, John five or John six. I'm sorry, my, my memory is failing me right now. Uh, they want to take him away and make him king, and Jesus retreats from them. Why does he do that? He was the king. Why would he not just let them do that? Because they wanted a military commander to obliterate Rome. And Jesus, that's not why Jesus came. Make our problems go away, Jesus. That is not why Jesus came. Jesus loves us. He wants to be with us in our problems. He heals us. He ministers to us. But that's not the, the meaning of his identity. There's something underneath that. And Jesus would not let them anoint a military general. He wouldn't let them do that. He is a humble king. He is a humble king. He wanted his legacy to be something more, far more, than beating off uh, and killing and destroying people that hurt his people. It's something more than that. He wants to bring his people to a place where they experience real transformation and love and renewal in Jesus. And I think part of what, and that leads to part of what made life hard for them. They were outraged. They were outraged. They were politically outraged. The people of God, the land of promise, and these filthy Romans are here telling us what to do. They were outraged. They couldn't tell the difference between their political fanaticism and their worship. They were the same thing. I think there's a message for us there. Sometimes we buy into a political euphoria when our team wins. And sometimes we fall into depression when our team loses. And that's God showing us our idolatry. It's God showing us our lust for power even when power might lead to have, making good things happen in our culture. 
slowly political outrage begins to displace and replace worship to the point that people can't tell the difference between political outrage and just a simple, sincere faith. Another thing that made it hard was just life. Life was hard. And when people are going through hard times, all of us can say this. We want somebody just to give us a break. We feel like we're entitled to getting a break. But Jesus would not lay off. He would not lay off. Don't get me wrong. He loved his people fiercely. But he relentlessly called them to discipleship. He relentlessly called them to discipleship. Life was hard. And sometimes when life is hard, we give ourselves a pass. And when we give ourselves a pass, we don't see our spiritual bankruptcy. And because God loves us, he shows us our spiritual bankruptcy. He points it out to us if we listen. That's why Jesus says throughout these chapters in John, hear my voice. Do you hear my voice? My sheep hear my voice. Do you hear him speaking to you? And there's spiritual bankruptcy. A guy named Jared C. Wilson, he's a, he's a avid tweeter and a good author. He said these words, I believe that evangelical churches will not see revival until in repentance we change the major, major focus of our sin, uh, change, the, change the major focus to our sin rather than the world's. We're always angry about all the stuff happening outside of us. Always fussing at somebody. Always protesting something. And we don't see the spiritual bankruptcy in our own lives. I'm not saying don't protest. I'm not saying, I'm not saying don't clamor for justice. I'm not saying any of that stuff. But if your euphoria or your depression rises and falls on American nationalism, on political discourse... Open your eyes, man. That is idolatry. That is idolatry. The kingdoms of this world are the kingdoms of our God. I believe evangelical churches will not see revival until in repentance we change the major focus to our sin rather than the world's. Everybody knows what we're against. Everybody does. Everybody does. Why don't we allow that same prophetic sharpness to hit our own hearts, our own lusts, our own jealousies, our own malice? What I found that was so ironic, and this is what I wanted to say in that Instagram feed, Just let it go, Chris. Um, <laughs> was the person assessing that photo, as though it was some sort of belief system, um, the person assessing that photo told, let me know how unbiblical and unscriptural that is. And I'm like, and I'm watching, look at this feet. This guy's killing me. And the irony didn't escape me that <laughs> at the end of the day, what really is the most scriptural is love. Love, bearing with one another, being with one another, serving one another. 
Jesus. I think I'm going to wrap it up there. I want to ask you this question. I want you to ask yourself this question. What makes it hard for me to believe? What makes it hard for me to believe? A precious person recently got on Facebook and began to tell the world about her new, her changing belief system. She was letting us know what makes it hard to believe in Jesus, what makes it hard, uh, what the, the hard things are in her life to, to, to follow Jesus. And she was saying that she could not reconcile, after seeing all the suffering in the world she's seen, she could not reconcile that suffering with a good God and an all-powerful God. What makes it hard for you to believe? I don't have any simple answers for that. I think a lot of people are feeling that in our world. We see things today that we wouldn't have seen 20 years ago because of social media, the internet, etc. We are so much more aware of the darkness in our world. And there are people in the West, their faith is getting blown up because they just can't reconcile a good God, an all-powerful God, with the extreme suffering that we see around the world. I would encourage you to begin with a little book called The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. That's a big one for me that helped me work through that because I struggled with that for a long time, even in ministry. How can God really be good when people are being raped and murdered, when children are dying in hot cars? And I mean, how, how can how God could just zap that window and, and ventilate that car? Why? Why not? I find myself so often in marital counseling appointments and one of the biggest one of the most common statements I receive is why won't God just change my spouse I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and she she won't change why won't God answer my prayers he's still the same I'm begging God he won't answer my prayers and my response to that Maybe unsatisfying unsatisfying to some people, but in order for evil to not exist in our world, God has to take away our human freedom. That's the only way for evil not to exist. For God to change your wife or to change your husband means that God's got to turn your wife or your husband into a machine. She's got to lose, he's got to lose their will their beliefs, their stories, their humanity for you to have a marriage that you want. And once those people, once we lose our will, our human freedom, and we are machines that are programmed by God, we are no longer a human race. We're just machines. And then this conversation is moot. Why? Because if we're machines, we're not even worried about suffering in our world. The only way, the only way for us to experience life and love and the presence of God is for God to say to people who had never experienced sin and temptation, there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Please don't do it. Don't eat of it. Don't disobey me. Trust me that I'm good and that I will satisfy you forever. Not those things. 
And we have that same choice today. I know this doesn't answer the question of good and evil for a lot of folks, I know. But I don't see any way our world turns into a place of perfect righteousness and love and warm campfires unless God takes away our human freedom. And that's not the answer. What is it that makes belief hard for you? Have you even thought about that? Maybe some of you don't think about that because you're afraid of the answer you're going to come up with. That if you really look at your disbelief and your doubt, that it may take you away from God and you may never come back. You're afraid to look at it. I challenge you, look at it. Look at it. Assess those things in your life that divide you from Jesus so you can believe. Oh, I feel like I'm leaving so much on the table today. Man, I need to trust Jesus that he's speaking to you and through my jumbled idiocy. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Oh God, help us to believe. I believe, but help my unbelief. One person said in the scriptures, God, help us to abide in you, to immerse ourselves in you. Help us to see that what we're really looking for is not just answers, but we're looking for Jesus. We are seeking hard after the Savior. And the Savior is not just a cosmic repairman, but the Savior is a person. And he loves us. And he wants to be with us. And he wants to walk with us. He wants to live with us in our boat in that stormy gale. Help us to believe Jesus. In your name. Amen.